Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida. This is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. This week, Celia Furman sits down with the Reverend Canon Dr. Christopher Corbin to discuss Matthew 14 through 28. Chris takes us through some aspects of Matthew that make it unique among the Gospels, namely fulfillment statements, doubling, and Matthew's emphasis on ordering the church. One word comes up often this week and will come up more throughout the New Testament, and that is the word Gentile. A Gentile is simply a non-Jewish person. Where Gentiles become important in the New Testament is that some authors in the New Testament seem to be writing in a way that appeals particularly to Gentile audiences, that is non-Jewish readers, helping them understand Jesus despite not being steeped in Jewish tradition. We'll see this more in the books of Luke and Acts, as well as the writings of Paul. Now, on to the episode. It's my honor to talk with Canon Chris Corbin from Leed, South Dakota. He received his bachelor degree from Florida Southern, master's in divinity from Yale, and completed a PhD in theology at Vanderbilt. He assures me that winters are better in South Dakota than those he experienced in either New Haven or Nashville. He's a Florida native, son of a Methodist minister, graduate of Leesburg High School, and knew Matt Hotho while attending Florida Southern. His marriage to his lovely wife was inspiration for both becoming ordained in the Episcopal Church and moving to South Dakota. He does not regret either of those choices. Chris, welcome to the Bible 2020 Project. It is my pleasure. We're I so, am so happy grateful to, to have you be a part of it. Let's talk about the second half of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, last week, we heard a definition of what Gospels were. And maybe another question might be kind of a follow-up. Why are there Gospels at all? That's a really great question, and one that wouldn't necessarily come up to us, particularly where we are in history and the place in the church that we're at. Uh, we're so formed by these four Gospels, these four written accounts of Jesus's life, that we sort of just assume, well, of course, there would always be some sort of extended account of Jesus's life as part of Scripture. But if we look back into the earliest writings that we have from the early church, so we look at Paul, for instance, when Paul talks about the gospel, what he's talking about is this very specific claim that Jesus was crucified, and then he rose from the dead, and then he appeared to Peter, Cephas, and the Twelve. But it's, it's this very, very narrowly defined section of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Um, and so... What are we doing then with these four books that are so interested in the whole life of Jesus Christ? And what we really seem to, to have is this, this snapshot that if we look at when in time these seem to be coming around. So they seem to be coming around in the 60s, 70s. Talked about that a little bit, I think, last week, what that timeline means. Yes, we have the crisis of the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed, and this certainly exacerbates, uh, it really makes worse these tensions that exist within the Jewish community between people who see Jesus as the Messiah and those who don't. But also, we're hitting a point when all this first generation of witnesses are dying off. 
So what probably was going on before this was that people were being told these stories about Jesus in just in church, right? In, in their gatherings, they were regularly being told this, but they're hitting this point where these people who knew Jesus are dying and they're saying, we need to, we need to lock this down. We need to actually have an account of who Jesus is. And beyond that, there's this really growing sense that the, the Christian community is becoming increasingly non-Jewish. It's becoming increasingly Gentile. And in becoming increasingly Gentile, there's probably this loss of the deep connection of Jesus's Jewishness. And so these gospels, all four of them, actually, this is something we're, we're going to talk about a little bit about Jesus's Jewishness and the Jewish character of the gospel of Matthew. But we have to remember that really all the gospels are thoroughly Jewish. It's just that there were a variety of Judaisms that existed at this early time in the formation of the church. And, and so the first century and what really we should be saying is that Jesus is the most like the Judaism that wins, <laughs> um, like like rabbinical or Pharisaic Judaism. So that's why it looks to us like it's the most Jewish. But all of the all of them are dealing with the question of Jesus's Jewishness from different angles. And what's really important about that is is two things. One, it, it shows us that the incarnation, Jesus being a real person in history with a genealogy, with a family, with friends, with a community matters. It's not, it's not just that Jesus as this abstract concept is something important for us. And that may have actually been what was going on with these early Gentile converts is that they were, they weren't actually that interested in Jesus as a person, as much as Jesus as sort of a power, like Jesus force was really what they were interested in was getting this Jesus power. And what this tells us is no, actually Jesus as a human being matters for the life of, of, of the Christian faith. And the second is Jesus as a Jewish human being matters for the life of the Christian faith. We can't erase Jesus's Judaism in understanding who he is. You, you mentioned about the Jewish Jewishness of Jesus. What about the relationship between Matthew and Hebrew scripture? Yes. Is there any particular way Matthew relates Jewish Jesus to the Old Testament? Absolutely. In fact, more so than any other gospel, I would say, Matthew is interested in showing how Jesus continues on and fulfills in most instances what is promised in in the Hebrew scriptures. So you get all these formulas of fulfillment of prophecy. This is not something that actually happens in a lot of other gospels. I think that as we read all of them and sometimes put them together, we have this tendency to think, oh, all the gospels are interested in Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. But that very particular kind of phrasing, you know, Jesus did this to fulfill uh Jeremiah or Isaiah or what was written in these different books. That's a very specific thing that happens in Matthew. And it's not so much about saying, oh, these people saw what Jesus was going to do. These prophets knew what was going to happen as much as to say that what was being spoken about then we have seen is done in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. Um, so Jesus is the, the Messiah. And of course, all the Gospels are interested in showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one for Israel. But Matthew is very particular in wanting to show as the fulfillment of Hebrew scripture. 
And, and this goes even deeper in sort of the way that Jesus is presented. Jesus is shown consistently as a second Moses. That's, that's really what Matthew wants to show, what it means specifically for Jesus to be Messiah. And, and so you have all the way from the beginning of Matthew with the, with the birth account and the early life of Jesus, um, these echoes of what happened to Moses in his life. I mean, all the way to Jesus is on several mountains. Well, Moses had a tendency to bring down uh, teaching from mountains, right? And so this is a, a very particular way of trying to connect Jesus back to that foundational Hebrew scripture, to, the, to what would become for the, for the Christian community, the Old Testament. Chapters 21 through 28 focus on the end of Jesus's ministry, his trial and the crucifixion. For having been written primarily to a Jewish audience, there's some very harsh words in there specifically that he has for that audience. How do you reconcile that? That's a really important question, particularly since Matthew has has some of these words that have been used most frequently in the in the really horrendous history of Christian mistreatment of Jewish people. Um, and so there's a, a sort of a tragic irony in the fact that that Matthew presents Jesus as the most like contemporary Judaism, and yet this has been the, the most divisive and, and destructive for the relationship between Judaism and Christianity throughout the history of Christianity. And really, like, what I would want to do is, is really focus on, on a particular there's a particular passage in the scene where Jesus is before Pilate at the end, the actual uh, point at which Jesus is condemned to die by crucifixion. Um, and we get this, this add-on that Matthew has that doesn't exist in the other Gospels, where, where they say, crucify him. The, the, the crowd of Jewish people gathered there says, crucify him, crucify him, um, and let his blood be on us and on our children. That, that addition right there is something specific that was not in the other Gospels. Now, this is the, this is the, the phrase that is often used for, a, um, for showing that, that the Jewish people throughout history after this continue to bear the guilt of having crucified Jesus, which is lamentable on a number, on a number of different levels. But one of them is that um, it's likely that Matthew actually used this phrase in order to circumscribe that guilt considerably. So this follows a kind of Old Testament way of talking about the way in which guilt is passed. And it's likely that, that, or that Matthew meant very specifically on us, as in us gathered right here in front of Jesus and our children, period. Like this is, this is very specifically sort of um, locating the, the guilt on sort of the generation and the children who are going to be around the destruction of, of the temple. And so this very particular group of, of Jewish people in Jerusalem and their children, so two generations, basically it's trying to explain, I think, why it is that at this particular point, the the temple would have been destroyed. And so there's, there might be some sense that that's, that's what's going on here, that, that the temple is being destroyed because of this guilt that is on this very particular group of people, this very particular crowd that actually condemns Jesus and their children. 
But of course, what's happened throughout time is that that's been read to mean sort of generation after generation and all Jewish people. And that's that has been, as we as we know, horrendous, not just with the Middle Ages and some of the, the terrible pogroms, the terrible, terrible attempts by Christians to blame Jewish people for various problems in society, but really in the culmination in the Holocaust during World War II, um, where these attitudes sort of bubbled up and, and, and um, came together to allow this horrendous, horrendous thing to happen. Um, and so we need to be very, very careful and attuned to that kind of language as Christians reading the this. And remember that actually Jesus is specifically presented as so Jewish in, in, in that his Judaism is necessary to who he is. This isn't the same as saying that there's no disagreement, of course, but actually that part of the reason why there is so much conflict between, say, the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is because of how similar they are, not because of how different they are. Jesus was such a man of action in the second part of Matthew, and we see him involved in feeding hundreds and thousands of people. He writes of two crowd feedings, one in chapter 14, where he fed 5,000, and another one in chapter 15, where he fed 4,000. Why are there two feedings? Why are they so close together? So Jesus or Matthew is here drawing on most likely the accounts that we have in Mark. So Mark also has these two feedings, but they're pretty spread out. As you point out, the the two feedings are close together in Matthew. So close together in fact that we get the sense that it's kind of like one episode that's going on. And What's also interesting here is that in Mark, Mark wants to really draw this distinction between probably the Jewish feeding of the 5,000 and the Gentile feeding of the 4,000. Matthew sort of does away with the things that would cause that, that strong distinction. So what we're left with, though, then is a very particular sort of thing that Matthew likes to do, which is double things up, particularly people. Matthew really likes to double people up where in Mark or in Luke, you have one person. So before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he heals in math or in Mark and Luke, a blind man. Whereas in Matthew, he heals two blind men. Um, this is the sort of thing that goes on over and over in Matthew. And so I think this is part of that, that there's this double episode of the feedings is there to sort of be part of this doubling up, which I would recommend as you're reading through Matthew, look for doubling. See, see these places where Jesus approaches two people or two things happen. Um, and then hold that in mind as you go into the other gospels and see how that's different. I, I think that we can sometimes read really far into that and try to get really deep into the symbolism of what's going on. I think that really what Matthew is probably doing is hitting back on that, that theme of second, right? Second Moses, the, the, the Jesus is the one who brings about the fulfillment of the law. So there's this, there's this sort of the symbolism inherent in the doubling that's meant to constantly show in everything that Jesus does, that he is the one who fulfills things. Um, and and so the the doubling up that goes through there, that symbolism is not, it's meant to be something I think that Matthew thinks, yeah, this happened, 
but also things that happen can be symbols for the meaning that we're trying to convey. And so that's what's, I think, really going on in these double episodes. And it gets really interesting when you get even into Jesus riding into Jerusalem, uh, because there's an instance where Jesus is riding on not just a donkey, but a donkey and the donkey's Colt, right? The uh, the foal. Jesus is riding on the baby as well as the mother, which is probably this coming together of a variety of the forces that we're talking about already. So, namely the 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 desire to have the fulfilling of prophecy, because at that point Jesus is probably riding in on two, because Matthew has read in Zechariah that he would be coming in on. The an ass and on the the colt the foal of an ass. Uh, so this was probably, in in all truth, a, a literary device that Zechariah is using um, to to talk about the like the same animal. But Matthew wants to read it very literally as, and show that Jesus is fulfilling this, and it also serves the purpose of being able to show doubling. So you have Jesus in this really sort of, if we think about it, this really silly picture of him riding, not sure how, whether he's got sort of his feet on the baby, uh, on the baby or what's going on, but he's got, he's on two animals. Chris, why do you think Matthew is the placement of Matthew in the canon as the first gospel? Hmm. So there's a, there's a history of this that that goes back to seeing Matthew as uh, having actually been translated from Hebrew originally. And so this, the thought was that it must be the closest, the most original to Jesus because it was written in a language that he would have spoken um, or that would have been sort of in his milieu, uh, in his environment around him. And, and so that's really the tradition that we have of of why that's there first. And I will say that there are some scholars who do still hold to that idea. The overwhelming majority of people do not hold that, but that's just, that gets to sort of the, the force of tradition. And I think it's worth, um, I think it's worth keeping in mind the idea that even if it wasn't factually the first written in terms of the unfolding of the early church, it has been so key to the life of the church. I mean, often Matthew will be described as the gospel of the church. And actually, Matthew is the only gospel in which the word church shows up. So the word church shows, ecclesia in in the Greek, shows up all over the place in the New Testament. But in the gospels, in the four gospels, it happens twice and both of those happen in Matthew. And so um, we get this sense that Matthew is deeply concerned with ordering the life of the church. In fact, um, people often say, you know, in my work, I do a lot of congregational development with people. And they're like, well, what's the best book for congregational development? I say, I do a Bible study on Matthew. Honestly, you want to you talk about the, the best starting place to find out how to develop your congregation more? Go back to the original. It's the Gospel of Matthew. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has these specific teachings for how we order how the church lives its life. So we're thinking um, particularly about, you know, when Jesus says, what, or, or when the disciples say, what, what happens if, uh, how many times do you forgive someone? Jesus says, not seven, but seven to- times seven uh, times do you forgive someone? This is an instance of talking about how do we actually order our life together? How do we how do we order how we're going to live in community 
as this anticipation of of the 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 kingdom of and I'll say in Matthew heaven not God because he wants to be good and rooted in the Jewish tradition of not overusing the name of God and then we also get the very particular instructions about what do you do when there's conflict in the church so you know first you go to your brother or your sister then you bring them before someone and then finally you bring them before the assembly you know this is the sort of instructions that we get in Matthew that we don't get in other places um, because Matthew is so deeply concerned with ordering the life of the church and so I think it's it's quite fitting that we continue to see go- the gospel of Matthew as sort of the entryway into the old or into the New Testament as the sort of the gospel that norms our life together in the church and seeing the church really as the place where we read these books. The church, these are not just things that we read on our own that sort of just speak privately to us. These are books that are best read and understand and understood and have been throughout history in the context of the gathered community wrestling together with how we live this life in Christ and how we how we interpret these scriptures for not just ourselves as individuals, although that, but also for all of us as a community. Thank you, Chris, for joining us and sharing your insights with us. Chris's final words can be instructive to us as we continue on our journey, namely that the Bible is best read and interpreted in the context of community. We have groups meeting online and you can join one of them at any time. You can find out more at hydeparkumc.org forward slash groups. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. And you can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. You can also connect with us on Facebook, search for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. Celia Furman produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.